All right, we're live. <clears throat> good morning, everybody. If you're tuning in, or good afternoon. It is three minutes afternoon. But we are back <clears throat> this week for another Dojo Discussions. My name is JM. For those of you that don't know me, which would be kind of weird because you're actually, if you're watching this on Facebook, you're following me. But <clears throat> we do this every Tuesday at noon. We're walking through the parts of the Bible known as the preface to the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11. And we are uh, seeing what leads up to the story that the rest of the book of Genesis is going to be concerned with, which is the family of Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And then the rest of the Bible kicks off and really begins. So as you, if you haven't caught the first couple of episodes, jump back on the podcast, go to discipledojo.org slash podcast. And the last couple of weeks that we've been in Genesis, you can catch up and see what we've talked about with creation and evolution and science and Big Bang and um, last week, Garden of Eden, <clears throat> all of these concepts that, again, the opening chapters of Genesis are just giving us a flyover of these massive epics in world history and key events that have to do with Israel and the covenant people. So the things that are focused on in Genesis 1 through 11 are things that are relevant to Israel and how they became the people of God, the covenant people, how they, who they are as people brought out of Egypt through the hand of Moses. So when, we're, when we read Genesis, though, we read it from a global modern perspective. We start asking all these questions about, you know, world events and floods and dinosaurs and anthropology and human development. We have all of these questions that the early readers of Genesis they just weren't asking. And the author of Genesis just doesn't care to answer. So <clears throat> you'll hear that over and over as we walk through these chapters. We get these tantalizing glimpses of things like, whoa, whoa wait a minute, what's that about? And we want to know more. And guess what? That's all we have. The Bible doesn't give us more. And so that's when we have to then fill out our worldview with the things around us, the things in the world that we can see through study, through science, through anthropology, through astronomy, through um, you know, biology, all of the areas of nature that God says, look to, to see my glory and discern my power. We can do that. Just keeping in mind that the Bible doesn't give us all of that. It's not a science book. It's not an anthropology textbook. So it's really important to keep that in mind that the Bible, what we're getting in these early chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis one through 11, we're getting what is in the technical literary term, and I don't even like using this term because of all the rhetorical baggage, but we're getting something close to mythos. And that's where we get the word myth from, but I don't mean myth as in fairy tale or made up. Most of the time, that's why I don't like using the word myth because we think myth, oh, fake, made up, not true. But that's not, that's not what it is. Myth, mythos, I use the word epic. I think epic is a better uh, terminology. And uh, like Sandra Richter, for instance, an Old Testament professor, she has a great, fantastic book. I shared it a couple of weeks ago called The Epic of Eden. And, it's a, it, and it unfolds the whole story of the Bible. But I think epic is a good word to describe what we're reading in the early chapters of Genesis because it's, it's massive in scale. It's epic. But it's also uh, stylized as an epic, as a... As a you know, as an account, not a scientific account, not a newspaper account, not um, not a normal narrative, but it's it's like we said the first week, it's elevated prose, 
And so when you're reading Genesis 1 through 11, you're reading epic primeval history. Before Anything before Genesis 12 can't be dated with any certainty. Genesis 12, Abram comes on the scene, and we can date Abram to around, give or take, 2000 B.C. So, the, so Abraham, anything from Genesis 12 through the rest of Genesis, that's within history. That's datable. Anything before that, and we'll see this when we get to some of the genealogies, we can't date with any certainty because genealogies alone aren't enough to give us all the information we need to situate things in human history. So these events we're going to look at today, we're going to jump back into Genesis 2 where we left off last week. These could be taking place eight, six, seven, eight thousand years ago or 500,000 years ago. Like it, there's this, this massive time and that'll just depend on what your anthropology is, what your view of the age of the earth and the age of humanity and the development of life on earth. And <clears throat> that'll depend on a lot of things. So again, we want to hold the things that we're reading in Genesis 1 through 11. I know this flies in the face of what you read on websites like Answers in Genesis or um, other young earth. If you go to the creation museums or, or other young earth homeschool uh, material, a lot of it, they, they, they want to hold tight to what's in Genesis 1 through 11, but they're holding tight in the wrong way, I think. They're trying to hold tight to the scientific details and they're actually missing what we should be holding tight, which is the theological truths to a large degree and kind of skewing how we see the world around us because of that. So I would prefer to say, let the text say what it says and let science and, and, and what we find in nature say what it says. And at the end of the day, if they can fit together, we can try to fit them together. But just like a, a, an anatomical statue and a picture of the Mona Lisa, both of those depict humanity, but they don't look anything alike. An anatomical diagram, rather, not statue, an anatomical diagram looks very different than the Mona Lisa. They have different purposes. So you couldn't completely reconcile. You could reconcile some things about them. Yeah, two eyes, a nose, roughly humanoid shape, uh, bilateral symmetry. You know, you could, you could, you could correlate some things between a, an anatomical chart and a artistic pic picture of a human, but you can't make them fit exactly. And that's what a lot of people, readers of the Bible try to do is they try to make it fit exactly to whatever it is in the, that they see or read about in science. So we want to be careful of doing that because what that does is it ends up skewing both things and you get this hybrid monster um, that, that doesn't make sense to either instead of seeing the beauty of each on its own. So scientific discovery of the world is one thing. Literary discovery of the inspired word is another thing. And at the end of the day, they don't contradict, but they also don't fit together perfectly in the sense that we can make out every detail. Some things we're just going to have to go, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know how this fits in with everything. We'll talk more about that next week, most likely. But there's still, there's so much depth in, uh, to plumb today. <clears throat> We left off with God created humanity in his image in Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And then in last week, and we saw in chapter 2 how it zooms in on that, what we would think of as the sixth day. It zooms in on that period of time where God was bringing about humanity. And 
he used the language, the text uses the language that's very similar to Babylonian and Egyptian uh, rituals, whereby the, the, the craftsman creates an idol, an image of the God, and then there's a ceremony where its eyes and mouth are opened, and the, the Ka, the spirit of the God, enters the idol, and then it's placed in a garden setting and there's food provided for it. These are, these are concepts from the ancient world that were widespread from Egypt to Babylon. And so Genesis is kind of piggybacking on some of these concepts, but using them in a way that subverts how Israel's neighbors thought about everything. So Israel's neighbors thought, oh, you have a garden uh, in a temple built by human hands, and there's an idol that's an image of the God, and you put it in that temple within that garden setting, and that's what you go and you provide it food and you worship it. Uh, and it's usually, you know, a God of a certain locale, like a God of the sea or God of the air, or the sun or moon or something like that. So Genesis takes all those concepts and flips them on their head. It says, no, no, the, the temple is creation. And the garden setting that God originally, the one true God created, this place Eden, uh, he didn't put a statue in there. He put humanity, Adam. And humanity is the image of God, not any statue. And he's not a God of the river. He's not a God of the sky. He's not a God of um, the ocean. He's not a God of on this mountain somewhere. He's not a God of any of these things. He's the God of everything. He created the heavens and the earth. So these Israel's scriptures use the language of their culture in ways that actually subvert the worldviews of the cultures around them in order to present the true myth. I'm using air quotes for those of you listening on the podcast, the true myth of, of who God is. And this is where we are now. In Genesis chapter 2, we ended last week with God saying the Lord God took the man, uh, yeah, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, and literally the verb is, and caused him to rest or rested him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and to take care of it. And we saw Ebed and Shamar, those two words, to guard and to keep, or to um, to work and, sorry, to work and to guard would be a good literal translation. So man has responsibility. He is God's caretaker. He is God's, uh, uh, you know, he is the divine park ranger, so to speak, to take care of things, to, he's the steward, not the manipulator, not the dominator, not the exploiter, but he's the steward of creation. And then he gives this command, and this command has caused people countless speculation. Uh, he said, you can eat from any of the trees in this garden. There's just one that you're not going to eat from. The, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that one. And we saw how it wasn't the tree of knowledge. It's not God's not anti-learning, anti-knowledge. That's how it gets spun in some pop skeptic circles. But it was, um, I've given you everything. You have all of it. One stipulation. See that tree over there? Don't eat that one. Everything else, go for it. Be fruitful, multiply. He's the command given in Genesis 1, as we're going to see when, when woman is introduced. Um, the command was to enjoy the earth, fill the earth, subdue it, bring it into under my rule, which implies that there are parts of creation that are not yet under the rule of God, or at least the domain of man. And so there's this, there's this implied, there's going to be some type of struggle. There's going to be some type of something that needs subdued. There's going to be work to do, things 
you're gonna you're not just gonna sit around lazily in the garden just plucking fruit and coming up with uh, poetry in your head or, or or whatever your picture of idyllic downtime is it's not that you you have work to do you're my caretaker you're my steward on this earth so there's work is was not work is not a result of the fall feudal frustrating work is a result of the fall work itself was part of god's plan from the beginning we are created to work we are created to do things uh, we're not created to sit around in heaven strumming harps on clouds or any of these other pop notions that we have we're not created to just lazily lounge around we're not cre we're created to work we're created to do stuff that's part of what's made this whole covid thing so hard for a lot of people is there's a lot of people who can't because of the covid quarantine situation they can't work they they literally i mean sometimes literally the government's like you can't work they shut their job down others like things have uh opportunities have dried up and the work that they once did they can't do right now and there's a huge mental spiritual toll that it takes on someone when they can't work because that's part of what we we're created to do it's not a bad thing it's not just oh you're a greedy capitalist you just desire money and you just have to be working and making money and no it's not about that i mean for some people it might be about that but for for normal people no it's about we are created for vocation we're created to work, to guard, to keep, to take care of, to tend, to have dominion over. So when we can't do that, unless we're super lazy <laughs> or our priorities are completely screwed up, when we can't do that, that's a huge missing chunk of what it means to be human that's been taken away from us. And so so that's a concern. We have to be aware of that and, and to empathize and, and let people know, yeah, that's a real thing. You not being able to work is a problem. Uh, spiritually, materially, emotionally, socially. Yeah, there's consequences. But back to the text. <clears throat> so God says, you know, all the trees you can eat from, but don't eat from this one. The day you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. You will absolutely die. Dying, you will die is what it says in Hebrew. So there's this warning, this penalty of like whatever death is. And, and the man has no concept of death from his own experience. So he would have to know that from observation of the outside world, from looking at things outside of Eden that aren't great, where animals do live and die, perhaps, especially if this is, you know, the old earth creationist view is correct and man, uh, animals and organisms have been around for eons, then there has been living and dying and there, but that has not entered into the realm of human, of Adam yet. And Adam Death is the unknown. Death is something that's foreign to what God intends for Adam to be. And there's a lot that you could kind of read into that. And so you want to be careful not reading too much, but sticking with just what the text says. So <clears throat> now the, after the warning, then verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. This is the first thing that's described in scripture as not good for the man to be alone. I will make, and this is verse that gets translated all kinds of ways, I will make a NIV, old NIV says, helper suitable for him. Some translations say, I will make a helpmate, or a older translations, I think even say help meet, um, helper. Uh, th this just comes to mind like, hey, man's lonely, he needs an assistant. 
you know, he needs somebody to just help him around the house. He needs some help doing stuff. And we want to be real careful because that is not what this text actually says. This text in Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, actually says, I will make an azer suitable or opposite of him or corresponding to him. An azer kenigdo in Hebrew. So uh, an azer, and we'll talk about what azer means in a minute, opposite of him. Like him, but converse or different or opposite or 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 face to face is kind of what the the word means. So, whatever this azer is going to be, it's going to be the counterpart, not a lesser assistant. Not you've got image of God is man, and then woman comes along to just help out with the other stuff. No. No, no, no. We've already seen in chapter one, male and female together are the image of God. Now we're seeing that play out in the realm of this first creating of this first actual man and woman. God says, I need to make, I will make an Azer. I will make a, a Azer who's opposite or corresponding to him so that the man will not be alone. Because that's the thing that's bad is aloneness. And so the Lord God Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the, of the field. Now pause here. People read a lot into this that's not necessarily there. Some people read this. They say it should be translated, now the Lord God formed. And that means that in the Genesis 2 version, God create God creates man first, then he creates the animals, and then brings the animals to be named by man. And so they go, that's a contradiction between Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. So this shows that there are two different sources that have been woven together into one narrative. And grammatically, that's possible. I mean, grammatically, you could maybe make that argument, but equally possible is what, in this case, the NIV does, which is it translates this as a pluperfect. The Lord God had formed the beasts of the field. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field. See, the way you say the Lord God formed, as in now the next thing he did, like sequentially, and the Lord God had formed, meaning a pluperfect, something he had done at a time earlier. In Hebrew, it's the exact same way. There's no difference in a perfect and a pluperfect in Hebrew. A simple past tense and a pluperfect tense, are the you'd say them the same way. So context has to determine, not grammar, whether this should be translated the Lord God formed, meaning the next thing he did, or the Lord God had formed, meaning something he had done earlier. And contextually, I think the NIV gets it right. I think this is because we've seen in Genesis 1 the order of the days of creation and so for Genesis 2 to switch that up and a clumsy editor not to catch that and still try to blend this together into one account from two original sources, that doesn't give a lot of credit to whoever the original editor was, whether it was Moses or whether it was somebody else. Um, it's kind of a pretty easy thing to catch. So if you're trying to form these two sources together, you would make them fit if you were making this up. And that's something that I think scholarship that, that sees two sources in this, I think that's an assumption. It's an assumption I don't share. I think the ancient writers were much better than we give them credit for in some 
circles. And I think they knew exactly how to read this, that this is describing God's workings on this day in a, in a recapitulated pattern. So he've already described the first, the heavens and the earth and all the creation, all the way up to man and woman in Genesis one. Now in Genesis two, we're jumping back. And because of that, these verbs, a lot of them will be pluperfect verbs. They'll be now the Lord God had done this. And then now he's doing this. So it's a little technical. It's a little grammatical, but, um, Check the commentaries if you want to get into all of these nuances, all of these arguments. I'm just telling you the assumptions that I'm operating from because I think they make more sense of the text. So the Lord God had formed all out of the ground, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So here's the idea of, of, of the man naming these things, which, which is kind of like, giving origins. You don't want to push this too far. This isn't like an ancient version of Linnaeus going around doing taxonomy. Um, he wasn't giving them Latin names. He wasn't separating them into kingdom phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, you know, he, the hierarchies. All, that's way too modern to think about. This is just in general talking about human getting familiar, Adam getting familiar with his, the things around it, the things he has contact with. Man has contact with the beasts of the field. Man has contact with the birds of the air. Man has contact with um, the, the livestock. You know, like all of these things are what man is normally dealing with. So, of course, he's going to call them things. And he's naming them, but there's nothing that is, uh, the end of verse 20, but no, for Adam, no suitable Azer, and this word it pops up again, Azer, no suitable Azer was found. So this is the problem. Man doesn't have an Azer. What's an Azer? Well, Azer means in the most general sense, helper. But that's a, not a good English word because we think of helper like your assistant. I mean, hamburger helper, right? It just helps the hamburger. The hamburger is the star. The helper is just give it a little bit of, you know, little uh -uh, something that spices it up. No, that's not what Azer means in Hebrew. So when we think helper, we have to put that out of mind. Azer means or, or has the sense of helper, someone who comes to the aid of. So when a king is, is facing an insurmountable army, he calls for Azer, help. People to come in. So, Azarim, I guess it would be the plural of Azar. Helpers, people who come in to aid, almost always in a military context or almost always in a context of deliverance. And I think because of that, deliverer is a better English word to use in this passage. No suitable deliverer could be found. Azar is. It has a sense of, it always, almost always has military connotations. Not always, but almost always. And, and even when that's used metaphorically, people who come in to aid someone in battle are Azers. So don't think hamburger helper. Don't think uh, made to help around the house. Don't think like the movie The Help. What's that talking about? People who help raise the kids, who help, you know, it's a, it's a quaint term for domestic assistant. Don't think any of that. That's not what the Azer is. Azer is, think um, the allies landing on Normandy Beach, helping 
the French. That's an Azer coming to the aid of, delivering, fighting alongside, teaming up with. And so we've already seen it's an Azer opposite of him or corresponding to him. So there's no hierarchy in the, the male-female relationship before sin enters the picture. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, man and woman are both Adam, human. They're both in the image of God. And when we get to the account of actually how the first man and the first woman are brought around, the first man is not complete without woman and needs deliverance, needs help, needs salvation in the sense, needs a team, teammate, a partner. And that's what God says, I'm going to provide. And so among the animals, he's not going to provide, he's not going to find that. Adam is incomplete and his azer, his deliverance is not going to come from any of the animals as beautiful and majestic as they may be. They are not azer and they are not suitable or corresponding to him. So what God does instead it's something pretty brilliant. <clears throat> Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. He put him under anesthesia. While he was sleeping, he took from his side, literally, he took one or a part of the man's side. This gets translated in English as he took one of his ribs. Um, and the word that's translated rib in this Genesis context means side in other contexts in Genesis. Like where Noah builds the door in the ark is in the side of the ark. So, you know, it's not being, it's not specifically talking about a rib. That's why you see these pop things on emails will circulate sometimes where it says, oh, well, you know, women have one less, or men have one less rib than women. And that's why we know the Bible's true. No, that's urban legend, that's nonsense. Um, this doesn't say there's one rib and God took that one rib and he made a woman out of it. That's a, again, that's a surfacey reading, uh, of the text. It doesn't do justice. God took from the man's side. God pulled from the man's side, took a part of the man. The ancient rabbis would say not from his head so that she would lord over him and not from his feet so that he would rule over her, uh, but from his side because of closeness by, by his heart that they would be connected, not in a hierarchical way, but in a teammate way. And so he took from the man's side or ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God built a woman from the part he had taken out of the man. NIV says God made a woman from the rib he had taken, but it actually uses the word built, like to build a building or to build a statue or to build something. It's, it's a craftsman type thing. And so, so there's intricacy, there's planning involved, there's God doing and working. It's this, it just creates a more tactile sense than, you know, God said, and it was like, this is, God is devoting creative energy to building, crafting woman, what's going to be a woman out of the man. And so there's this really cool symbolism in this story is that men and women are not just kind of connected, they're intimately connected. That, that man and woman are the counterparts to one another. We said this a couple weeks ago, in the Bible, gender matters and sex matters and they're sacred and they're holy. And that's why Christians can't get behind movements that seek to um, make subjective or make just cultural whims 
be the deciding factor when it comes to issues of gender and sex because they are a part of who we are as male and female. Now, the fall is going to happen shortly in the next chapter. Sin is going to enter into the human experience. Death, sickness, disease, um, brokenness, deformities, you know, all of these things are going to become a reality in a fallen world. But the ultimate purpose, the thing that, that everything points back to in terms of God's desire for humanity and the norm for humanity. There will always be exceptions. There are always going to be people outside of the norm. And and how we minister to people outside of the norm is with grace and with love and with self-sacrifice and with understanding and with kindness and with self-sacrificial love uh, to a degree that we can't even imagine. that That's what we should be doing, but all within the framework of, but this is how, all things being equal, things were supposed to run, things were supposed to be. And we got to hold those two things in tension, and Christians aren't always good at doing that. But he'd taken the, uh, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, from the part of the side he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this time, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is a poem. He's not like speaking a perfectly grammatical sentence. Yeah, it, it, NIV says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But, but in Hebrew, it's like, this time, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, this is different from all the other things you brought me. All the other animals that you brought me that I named, and none of those were quite like me in a suitable sense of being an Azer. This time it is. This is this is it. She will be called. This one will be literally. It says in here. This she. It's feminine form. But she. This one will be called Isha. Woman Isha. Because she was taken out of man Ish. So Isha. This kind of directional play on the word Ish for man. So man and woman don't quite have the same, I mean, they kind of do, I guess, because the word man is in both man and woman. Um, but it, does, it, it comes close, but the, but the, 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 in Hebrew, this is, I'm ish, that's isha. We're so closely related. We're, we're two halves of a whole. And then verse 24, this is a quote, a verse Jesus quoted, for this reason, man will leave his father and his mother and be united to, cleave to, be welded to. Literally, the verb has to do with like welding things together. It's that much of a uniting. Be, uh, be enmeshed to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So this is what the, the, the first Adam, male and female together, what it actually looked like in this story. The two becoming one flesh. And later, when Jesus is asked a question about divorce and remarriage, because later in Scripture, after sin enters the picture, things are going to go kind of haywire. And then later in Scripture, Deuteronomy is going to give laws that regulate things among fallen humans, like polygamy and divorce and murder and uh, a vengeance. And all of these things that are part of the human experience that have to be regulated, legislated, and hopefully ultimately one day done away with. But in the interim, God gives through Moses these laws how Israel is going to live, the, the Torah, covenant. 
And when Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce in the New Testament, he's going to point back to this verse. And he's going to say, guys, go back to the beginning. If you want to know God's intention, go back to the beginning. This is what his intention was. So everything after that is God allowed for your hardness of heart. God allowed things like divorce. God allowed things like forced servitude. God allowed things like uh, captives from war. God allowed things, all of these things that were already widespread part of human experience after the fall, God's going to allow and he's going to legislate in ways that try to mitigate their worse effects. But originally, it wasn't supposed to be this way. That's what Jesus is going to say. And it's a major hermeneutical step. It's a major interpretive concept that if we want to know God's intentions for things, how they should be, whenever possible, we need to go back to the original, how they were supposed to be before things got went haywire and before sin entered and messed things up. That's what Jesus is going to do. We have, if you want to uh, go more into that topic, check out the first two sessions, uh, pretty much the second session in particular of the Disciple Dojo study to know and be known forming a thoughtful Christian sexual ethic. It's on the website, discipledojo.org, and just click on video resources. And there's a, it's a whole course on biblical sexual ethics. And we talk about that passage in particular and what Jesus does by pointing people back to the original intent. He points them back to the original intent and says, this is how it was supposed to be from the beginning. So when it comes to divorce, yeah, God's not a fan of it. But sometimes in a fallen world, it is necessary. And so there are things that give guidelines for how it should be done. But ultimately, it's always the result of sin. Somebody, one or both people in the marriage, have broken faithfulness and the marriage comes to an end and, and it breaks God's heart. And he, But it happens. So it's not like, G, and Jesus, you have to temper Jesus's statements on it with the rest of scripture statements on it and Jesus's apostles, because they talked about it too, to see the full picture of what the Bible teaches about divorce. Uh, again, check out To Know and Be Known, session two, I believe, maybe two and three, where we talk in depth about that. But what Jesus does in his discussion is pulls it back to the beginning. So whenever we have discussions of things, especially things involving gender and sexuality in our culture, which are big issues, we also, as Christians, I'm not talking to people outside the church, but as Christians, we have to go back to the original intention and try to discern what was God's desire for humanity originally. And then how is that played out over the centuries and how does sin affect it and how does redemption, how does transformation and sanctification and all of these things that are key parts of the gospel, how do they affect what we view or the, the lens through which we view all these things. But the text, <clears throat> at least this chapter, an azer has been found, one who can deliver Adam from the state of being alone, one who is suitable, opposite, corresponding to him. So it's kind of like his, he's met his mirror image from his side. There's a cool ceremony that uh, some cultures do where when a man and a woman marry, the man literally opens his robe or cloak and wraps it around his wife, pulling her close to his side. And that's symbolizing, I am now pledging to protect you, to, to care for you, to honor you. But it really has resonances from all the way back to creation. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the imagery is there of what has been separated comes back together 
And so in this marital union, in this male and female becoming one flesh, symbolically, theologically, what's happening in marriage is the two from Adam that were divided when God brought her from him are now reintroduced and come back together. And that's what the marital union is supposed to be. Now, of course, we don't live up to that always. And many people experience the opposite of that and brokenness and striving and fighting and futility and, and unfaithfulness and abuse and all of these things that are the antithesis of what God originally intended. But when you want to know what should marriage be, originally Jesus points us back to this chapter, to this section. And so there's a lot that we can see in this. It's pretty profound if we think about it. So the two, they come together, it'll be one flesh. Um, the man and his wife, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. This, uh, this is a bridge sentence to the next chapter. Remember, chapters weren't original. They were added later. But this is the bridge to the next section because what it's going to end with, it's a good ending point in terms of a chapter break, but it's an ending with a little bit of a foreshadowing note. The man and his wife, they were both naked but felt no shame. Now, this is in the ancient Near East. The, the ancient Near East was a culture, and even today in the Middle East and in many places around the world, uh, outside of like Europe and North America, in many cultures, nakedness is associated innately or automatically by default with shamefulness. So if you want to shame someone, you strip them down. Why do you remember the pictures that came out during uh, uh, the war on terror that the endless, ridiculous war on terror, like as if terror is a country that we can wage war against. But anyway, that's another topic. Uh, remember when from Abu Ghraib and from other places where there were pictures where the, the, the suspected terrorists or the captured prisoners would be stripped down naked and there's like soldiers with, you know, American soldiers were photographed like pointing at them and laughing or with like a rope around their neck and they're stripped down naked. And they're, why did they make, why did they strip them naked? Because of the shame. That's how you shame someone, especially someone captured from the Middle East, where nakedness is seen as like the ultimate form of shame. And this is hard for us to imagine in our culture where nakedness is almost celebrated or celebritized. I mean, you have an entire empire that was built off of one girl having a sex tape go viral on the line and boom, you have the Kardashians. Like that entire billion dollar empire came from a sex tape. So without her being naked online for all the world to see, there would be no any of that. So it's hard in our culture for us to go look at nakedness and go, oh my gosh, that's, that's shameful in the sense of, of embarrassment or whatever. I mean, there's some of that depending on the person, but just culturally in general, uh, we don't have the same uh, visceral reaction to nakedness that they do in the that they did in the ancient Near East, and that they do even in parts of the Middle East today, and in other more traditional cultures. And so, this saying that the man and the woman were naked but unashamed is massive, because it's saying that bef that 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 shamefulness that nakedness emanates is a result of sin entering into the picture. That it wasn't originally like that. Originally nakedness. So when people who are like, oh, don't be a prude. You know, there's nothing wrong with being naked, blah, blah, blah. They're kind of right. 
but they're in the wrong they're they're in the wrong setting. In other words, they're kind of right. Originally, before sin, before brokenness entered the world, nakedness was something to have no shame in whatsoever. But through the entry of sin into the world and the distortion of the male-female dynamic and of the brokenness of the sexual relationship that was supposed to be two becoming one flesh, and that gets turned into whatever it, it becomes in the eyes of whatever people want, nakedness now engenders a sense of shame. And rightly so. There's there's a reason why there, you know, even in the most liberated cultures, there's still, you don't show up to a kid's birthday party naked, right? There's a reason for that. Because there's still a sense of, of, of impropriety, of shame, even in the most liberal cultures. There are still taboos. There are still lines you don't cross. So how those came about and what they, how they manifest in different cultures is something that you could discuss and anthropologists discuss all the time. And that's fine. There's no one size fits all. But the concept of nakedness being linked with the notion of shame is a universal thing to humanity. And at the macro level, at least. And so what this is saying is originally, though, it wasn't that way. That is a clue that there's something gone wrong with the, the entire human experience. There's more to say on that, but I want to, we're running out of time, so I want to wrap up. So the man and his wife, they're naked and they felt no shame. Um, the word for naked is arum. So the word for naked is um, they were both arum. Now the next section, that's the Hebrew word, arum. The next verse, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That word crafty is arum. So it's, it's the same word. I mean, it's, there's a slight vowel difference, but it's the same root word, nakedness and crafty. And there's a wordplay going on. The serpent, it's like the man and the woman were naked and felt no shame. The serpent, though, he was craftier than all. He was, he was slick. He was, there was, it, it's not a definition relation, but it's a, the, it's a homonym. Is that right? Homophone. It's a homophone. It's a word. One word can have two different meanings. And so there's a kind of, that's what's going on in this section. The serpent shows up. Now, the serpent, he was you can't do it in English. You'd have to say he was more naked than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. But it doesn't mean he was naked. It means he was crafty. He was So this is one of those things where there's some things just they don't translate from one language to another. So we just have to deal with that. But that's the verbal link to the past section. Like everything ends great. Genesis 2 ends beautifully. Beautifully. It's a reason that this passage is read at weddings. Genesis 2 ends with what it's supposed to be. Genesis 3 begins, now, the serpent, the nachash, the, the, and, and it's not just a snake in the general sense, but this figure, this serpent figure, was more crafty than all the wild animals God had made. So uh, there's, there's an element in this creation that has already started to show it needs to be ruled over. It needs to be subdued. The mandate for humanity was to rule over the birds of the sea, the fish of the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, um, the beasts of the field. Now we're, we finally see verse chapter three, verse one, we finally are introduced to that thing that was only hinted at in the previous chapter, 
that there would be something in creation that needs to be subdued, that needs to be ruled over, that needs to be brought into uh, the realm of God's sovereign rule. And we find out that that is this figure, the serpent. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, right here, one, we've got a talking snake. That's kind of weird. But if we keep in mind that this is all epic, that this is all um, elevated prose, that this is not just your everyday reporting going on. This is a crafted mythos, myth in the, in the true sense, uh, then these figures take on prototypical or archetypal is a better word. These become archetype figures. So whether there was this, uh, whether it was actually a snake like we would see today, well, what kind of snake? I don't know. Uh, you know, there's all these different types. You know, wh whether it was a figure who is personifying himself through a snake, whether it was this is all a symbolic of who we will find out later in the Bible is the deceiver, the adversary, Hasatan, Satan. Um, that connection will be made later in scripture. At this point, it's just part of creation, this, the serpent, this figure in the created order that man and woman are supposed to rule over. All of those questions, we have to kind of hold with loose hands and say, I don't know, but let's see what this story is teaching first. Then we can try to figure out how we fit it with science. So we don't need to go look at the vocal cord structures of snakes today, because that's not going to do us anything that's not going to do anything to prove or disprove the Bible. If you say, oh, snakes can't talk, they don't have the, the vocal cords and the lip structure to make work. That's, that is, the text isn't even remotely saying that. We don't even know if this was verbal, out loud communication. In other words, we don't know how this would look if somebody were there videotaping it. All we have is the epic, legendary, literary description of this event that could use, a, it could incorporate a large degree of symbolism or a large degree of, of, of uh, story to it. So I'm saying all of that, we're running out of time, we got like five minutes left. I'm saying all of that to say, stop pressing for literalism when you're reading Genesis 1 through 11. Read it as an epic. Read it as a story that's using the genre of myth, that's using archetypes, that's using these characters that stand for something, because that's what their function in this story is. They stand for something. Whether they would actually have looked like this, don't know. But pretty much every depiction you see in children's storybooks or cartoon versions or illustrations are always trying to make concrete what is pretty fluid in the text. And that's something to keep in mind as we're reading this. So the woman said, we may not eat from the trees in the garden, uh, God did say you may eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you may not eat from it and you must not touch it or you will die. That's the point I want to get to. Who was the command given to? Not to, to not eat from the tree. Who was the command given to? It was given to the man, Adam. After the command is given, then woman is created. That means that for the woman to know this, that God said it, she would have to have been told by man 
Now this is all telescoped into like, I mean, if you just read this through, it reads like it's all happening at the same time. We don't know how long they lived together in that state of being naked and unashamed. We don't know what happened. We don't know whether uh, they had, we, we just don't know. We don't, we, we don't have enough. But what we do know is that the command was given before she was brought into being. So she had to have received that. The New Testament will pick up on this later. It'll talk about sin, and it will say through one man, sin entered into the world. Why? Because the woman was not the one who was given the original command. Man was given the original command. The woman, as we're going to see in this section, gets deceived by the serpent. But man wasn't deceived. Man knew. Man, Adam knew what was supposed to happen. He was not deceived. He just rebelled. And that's going to be the difference. So in the New Testament, that passage where it says the woman was deceived, people think that that's disparaging women. It's actually not. It's actually the opposite. It's saying the woman was deceived, meaning man, though, rebelled. Man full on sins. In the, and that's why it's called the fall of man. That's why Adam is seen as the one who uh, led humanity into sin, not Eve. It's folk theology to think that woman is the one. She committed the act, but she's not the one that had the command given to her in the first place. The man did, who's standing here this entire time. We read this passage as if the snake approached the woman while she's alone. No, no. We'll see in just a few verses that the man has been here all along and he has been dead silent. Adam has given up. He has surrendered his right to be ruler. He takes a complete passive backseat role. And, and the consequences are disastrous. So the woman, uh, or we will die. Verse four, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the irony here is Satan's lying in one sense, but he's truthful in the other sense. He's lying in the sense of saying you will be like God, well, one, he says you won't surely die. He's true in the sense they don't literally die, but he's false in the sense it's actually worse. Death enters into the human experience on a macro level. And so death affects all of humanity from now on. So Satan's lying in that regard, but he's truthful in the sense that the day they eat of it, they don't literally drop dead. He's also truthful in the sense that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Yeah, that's true. Their eyes will be opened to what good and evil are. Their eyes will be open to experience, because now evil will not be something that's just cognitively known about. It will be something that's experientially participated in. They will know good and evil because they will have chosen evil. And so he's lying in that. I mean, he, again, Satan's, he's, he's Arum. He's crafty. He takes and twists things. He doesn't just make stuff up. He takes something and makes it sound believable. He still does it today. Every sin is a is a, twi a desire for something good twisted into an evil outcome. Every sin, whatever it is, there's a core at the very heart of that sin. Even if it's just a longing for self-fulfillment, even if it's just a longing for nourishment, even if it's just a longing for relationship, whatever, it's sin because it gets twisted and distorted into something monstrous. And that's what Satan does. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. The irony says you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The irony is we know they already are like God. They're the image of God, the imago Dei, male and female. They already have what he's promising. 
So he obscures that by pointing to what they don't have and making it look appealing. That's what sin does. It points to something we don't have and it tricks us and fools us. It deceives us into thinking that that's a better thing than what God has given, that what we do have. And so, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. He was right there the whole time. Interestingly, the RSV, Revised Standard Version, leaves that phrase, who was with her, out. I have no idea why, but it's as plain as day in the Hebrew text. Adam was there. This was his moment to act on his calling. This was his, to guard and to work the garden. You have an enemy come into the garden who is now trying to lead his other half away, his Azer, and this would be his chance to be Azer. This would have been his chance. What Adam should have done was crush the head of the serpent at that point, or at the very least, rebuked him and called down God's judgment on the serpent, appealed to God. He should have done something. This is a moment at this tree. He had a moment to issue a judgment and he failed. It's no coincidence that thousands of years later, hanging from another tree, the second Adam will take upon himself the judgment that we've all deserved, that all humanity has gone astray in order to reconcile us back to God. There's a powerful image of tree and judgment. Look throughout scripture. Just look at how often tree and judgments are connected. Um, trees and cursing are connected. Trees and cursing, trees and judgment. There's, there's a theme throughout scripture. If you pick up, a lexi, uh, pick up a concordance sometime and just look through and see what you find in that regard. There's your homework. But this is what he should have done. He should have done, but instead, what does he do? He stays silent and he acquiesces. She gave some to her husband and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They were naked before. Shame has entered into the equation. Now their nakedness is embarrassing. Now their nakedness is vulnerability. Now their nakedness, something's not right. They are no longer in the rightful place of the crown of creation. They have given that authority. They have given their place of ruling over. They have, they have uh, surrendered it to the serpent by going along with him. There's so much more. We could literally spend hours on just this one chapter. Um, I, you know, you could spend a whole semester unpacking all of this. We don't have time to do that. But what was at the last chapter, they were naked and felt no shame. Now with the introduction of sin, they were naked and ashamed. Somebody asked in the questions I can see popping up here. I can't read them all. So if you ask me a question live, I can't answer it. But since we're at the end and we're going to wrap it up for today, somebody asked a question, well, do you think in the resurrection and the new heavens will be naked since they were originally naked? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think there's a couple of things you could think of in formulating an answer. You could say, 
is the new creation goal to take us back to Eden or something better than Eden? So when new creation is described or new Jerusalem and, and, and people in there's sometimes there's mentions of garments, of fine garments, and there's mentions of elements of what we would call like city life. I mean, the new Jerusalem is depicted as a city not a garden. It's a city with garden imagery throughout. So Eden, the new, the new Jerusalem is like Eden 2.0. It's like the best of garden imagery and the best of city civilization imagery brought together. So in that sense, I think that in the new creation, the resurrection, if we have clothes, if we have garments, it won't be for covering shame. I don't, so what does that mean in terms of everyday life? I don't know. We can't fathom the new creation. That's why we only get hints and glimpses and, and shadows of it. We never get uh, concrete, spelled out explanations of what heaven new creation is going to be like. We can only, we only get things pointing the way. So in that regard, will we have clothes in the resurrection? If we do, they won't be to cover our shame. They'll be some other purpose. They'll be to express creativity. They'll be to enhance beauty. They'll be to, uh, I mean, those are the types of ways you would think about it. They will not be to cover our shame because shame and nakedness will no longer be tied together in the new creation because shame from nakedness is a part of the fallen creation that we live in now. Um, so anyway, think about that. Uh, you don't think about nakedness a lot in Bible studies, but that's why Disciple Dojo is here. We push into territory that makes pastors and Sunday school teachers squirm sometimes. But this story, we're going to see in the next section now, God's going to show up. And he's going to show up in judgment. Um, this section, though, has been told and retold, and it's become an archetypal myth even outside of the church. Everybody knows Adam and Eve. It's usually personified by an apple. This is the fruit. Guys, this is not the fruit. The Bible never says apple. These are not indigenous to anywhere in the ancient Near East uh, that this would possibly take place in. So guarantee it wasn't this, but whatever the fruit was, whatever the fruit of that tree was, it wasn't the fruit itself that was evil. It was the act of eating it, the act of disobeying the one commandment that God gave. We'll talk about that more next week when God shows up and, and gives his opinion of the situation. But we're right at an hour, so we need to cut it short. Guys, I'm